You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Hello, thank you for listening. Charlotte Greenway in for Nick today on Wednesday the 18th of October and in this episode we'll continue to discuss Kipco British Champions Day ahead of that on Saturday at Ascot with input from Carl Burke on his likely runners whilst we've got news from Australia and Hong Kong to come as well. Lee Mottshead is alongside me this morning and Lee will start this morning by picking up on some news from Kempton Park on Monday evening where Holly Doyle picked up what could be a really rather significant ban. What's the story here, Lee? Yeah, potentially very significant, Charlotte. Um, Monday evening, uh, Kempton Park, wouldn't have been many people watching at all. It was the 8 o'clock race, a Phillies handicap, a 0-70. First prize was just over four grand to the winner, so race in the great scheme of things of no huge consequence but holly doyle picked up a seven day ban a careless riding ban uh for her performance in that race aboard rose light a 13 to 2 shot trained by jonathan portman and what is so significant is the seven day ban encompasses both days of the Breeders' Cup at Santa Anita, where Holly is currently due to ride Brad Sell, her Group 1 winning Kingstown Stakes mount for Archie Watson in the Breeders' Cup turf sprint. Now, that race is clearly a Grade 1 with an enormous pot and an enormous significance. This Kempton race wasn't, and it had barely got going when Holly Doll committed the offence that the stewards did not take kindly to. Uh, anyone who watches races regularly at Kempton will know that the one mile three furlong start is relatively close to the winning post and therefore the stables bend. And going into that bend, Holly, whose mount was drawn wide in 13, she appears to make a manoeuvre right. And in doing so, as she goes round the bend, she cuts up a number of horses on her inside, causing interference um, that was immediately noticed by the racecourse commentator uh, Richard Halls. It was hard not to notice. It was clearly very significant interference. Uh, the stewards' report um, said that um, an inquiry was held to consider interference entering the first bend. Uh, involving page three, written by William Carver, typical woman, placed second, written by David Egan, Sindri, unplaced, written by Sheen Murphy, Flying Circus, unplaced, written by Neil Callan, St. Colette, unplaced, written by Trevor Whelan, and Rose Light, unplaced, written by Holly Doyle. Doyle was suspended for seven days for careless riding as she allowed her mount to shift right-handed when insufficiently clear. So a seven-day ban, as I say, for a race of no great consequence, but the consequence for Holly Doyle, if this ban stands, will be really significant. Say she will be ruled out of the Breeders' Cup. Brad Sell was her confirmed mount at the moment. I guess we're talking about Ascot in a little while, uh, Charlotte, if the weather interfered to such an extent that Nashua didn't go there and went to America and said that could involve Nashua as well. The one consolation at the moment for uh, Holly Doyle is that the day in which she's allowed to return to racing 
is the day in which she's booked to ride future history in the Lexus Melbourne Cup. So Melbourne is still on for Holly Dawless thing stand. The Breeders' Cup is not. Yeah, and I spoke to Holly this morning and she confirmed that the she is appealing and it's set for Thursday next week. So um, it'll be interesting to follow that. And I and I guess if she if it's cut down to five days, then she will be able to go to the Breeders' Cup and ride Brad Sell. These things are always um, quite nuanced, aren't they? It's very often not as simple as saying um, uh, that you want the band completely turned over. Just having a day or two shaved off can make a significant difference. And Lee, you mentioned there that the weather may well put pay to Nashua running at the weekend. We're not quite sure what she's going to do yet. She's got an entry over a mile and a mile and a quarter, but maybe she'll appear in neither. And uh, yesterday in the Racing Post, Lee, there was an article about the possibility of moving races from the round course to the inner hurdles track and also the possibility of moving all races to the round course. So, So what's the latest there? Well, yeah, I mean, Asker is braced, Charlotte, for potentially uh, appalling weather um, later on today. So we're recording this on on Wednesday morning. Uh, I'm looking outside the minute. Nick often reports what it's like in in uh, in Teddington, in, in Ashdown. It's currently dry and overcast. Yesterday was glorious. We've got three loads of washing done. But in advance of what is going to happen today, because from this afternoon onwards, we are due to get significant rain. Uh, apparently rain so significant that it is classed as a storm. Storm uh, Babette, um, apparently. Um, and if the rain uh, is of such significance um, that the, the the action has to switch to the hurdles course, and remember that the, the ruling is if the heavy is in the going description on race day, um, then the action can move on the round course to the inner flat course, which in effect is the hurdles course. Now, generally that would mean that you'd have three races on the hurdles course, the round course races, and the three straight course races. But there's just a possibility that if the straight course is deemed to be unraceable uh, because of conditions, because of the because of the rain that comes in, then those races could be switched to the round course as well, which would mean the uh, the Queenless with the second stakes, the uh, British Champion Sprint and the Balmoral Handicap would also be run on the round course and therefore around a bend. Now, Ascot was saying they still think that is unlikely uh, when talking about this yesterday, but it is a possibility. And of course, as we've discussed on this pod in the past with, with, with Nick, once upon a time, the QE2 was run around a bend, albeit on the main track, not the hurdles track. And uh, I think Nick and I both agreed that that would be a better long-term outcome for the race. We, we might get a one-off return to the round course on Saturday, but the, the most important thing is, Charlotte, how much rain comes in later on today and then how much rain follows through Thursday, Friday and Saturday when the Met Office sound less certain about the quantities than they do uh, compared to this afternoon and into this evening. And just, just on those three that could potentially be moved, uh, I mean, the sprint, if that got moved, some of those horses will never have seen a bend in their life apart from at home. No, I mean, clearly it's the sort of thing that um, is completely um, outside the culture of racing over here. We don't run, unless you're at a track like um, uh, Chester, um, sprints around a bend. Now, once upon a time, 
again, uh, listeners of an older vintage will remember that Haydock's uh, Spring Cup was run around the bend because for a long time, Haydock didn't have a six furlong straight course. Um, but generally speaking, all our big sprints are run around the bend. If you go to Australia, where we'll be focusing a lot of uh, pod conversation quite soon, um, Charlotte, the vast majority of their sprints are run around the bend, including, of course, the Everest, the world's richest turf race that was staged on Saturday. And for them, when they have major sprints staged up the straight course at Flemington, which is the only major Australian race course with a straight course and a co- that can accommodate uh, six furlong sprints, for them, that's something of uh, a, a novelty in itself, the fact that they can have a straight course sprint. So it, sort of, it, it depends on the territory where you are in terms of what's strange and what's not strange. But certainly for our horses, our top sprinters, a contest around the bend would be unusual. And what you have to remember as well is that they'd be racing around the bend on a tighter course than Ascot's main flat track. They call this the inner flat course. It's in effect the hurdles course. And of course, the hurdles course is on the inside of the main flat track and therefore it is sharper. Um, as was discussed on the pod yesterday, it's not an ideal outcome for many reasons, not least because for the paying public, the action takes place further away from the grandstands and it's a tighter track. But the, the ground conditions are very different um, on both at the moment, Charlotte. As we speak, you're looking at um, the the main flat course is good to soft, good, uh, good, good soft, soft in places. The inner flat course is good good to firm in places so you've got one track that's got soft in places one track that's got good to firm in places at the moment those ground descriptions are very different and it is quite odd that we're going into the most valuable race day in british racing with two such potentially different ground outcomes um on the cards albeit if we do get the quantities of rain that are forecast then even the hurdles track is going to end up pretty darn soft Well, I had a look last night through the entries and tried to pick out a couple of horses who I thought might really appreciate soft ground. And two of those are trained by Carl Burke. So I put a call into him a little bit earlier to find out which of his five that are currently entered are likely to run on Saturday. Hopefully all five um, five will go. Uh, Two in the sprint. um, Poptronic. Aylan Du gets in um, in the handicap. And Royal Rhine. And looking at the sprint first, Spycatcher, he ran his best race two, um, two runs back in the Primary Easter Geese when he just went down a short head. Is he a horse that is going to really appreciate the ground? Uh, he handles soft ground. He wants soft ground, really. So um, there's no worries there. Um, you know, it probably wasn't the strongest renewal of the Morris de Geese, but he was a little bit unlucky to run, uh, uh, to, not to win, really. Um Maxine Guillaume rode him. He hadn't ridden him before and probably just hit the front of, you know, at least half a furlong too soon. And he just got outstayed close home, although he battled away well. Um, so he was a little, I, we felt he, he probably could have won rather than should have won, but could have, could have won. Um, he goes there in great form. It's a tough race, but, you know, it's huge prize money. You've got to give it a, give it a go. And last time, possibly a little bit disappointing. Do you think maybe he just didn't quite see the seven furlongs out? I think that as well, and we just had a few little training issues going into that, and he probably, um, he probably, you know, 
ran up and blew up as well. So I can forgive him that one. And seven furlongs definitely with, with him needing the run a little bit, um, definitely caught him out, you know. And swing along, she's a ultra consistent filly and ran really well last time at Haydock um, in the Sprint Cup there. How do you see her faring on Saturday? She She's a very high-class filly and um, she was a little bit unlucky really in... in uh, think she could have been a bit closer not saying she'd have won but uh i was pretty sure that uh, pretty sure that um, they'd come down the stand rail and we were drawn that high down that stand rail we jumped and we like to go forward and she likes to get on with it but nothing came with us they all sort of um went over the far side and she's a real tough filly when something comes to her so for her to only be beat a length and a half and staying on again like that i think if something had raced with her she could have gone closer, like, you know, so she's a very good filly. Ground, although she's a showcasing, they usually like slow ground. Ground would be against her a little bit to be at her best, I think. Um, she, she's performed real well on, on good, good, fast ground, you know. And Royal Rhyme, he's certainly the, the intriguing runner of yours over the weekend. He's just looked a new horse the last twice when he sort of bolted up uh, and then ran really well at air to chase down Pride of America. What's brought about this change, do you think? I think he's just a late maturing horse. Again, he's had a few um, little niggles. He ran once at two and when he won there, he, he was only half fit. Um, but loves the ground. The ground's the key to him. It was soft the first run at, as a two-year-old, and he bathed away really well. He's always a horse I thought that had a, a big engine in him, but he was pretty um, not fragile. But you know, he always had his training niggles after a gallop. And you, you know, you'd always have to back off him. So um, maturity, really. He, he's getting stronger all the time. He's putting on weight all the time, and he's in a real good place at the moment. Whether he's good enough to to win a Group One, I don't know, but. There's certainly the slow ground will help him. Yeah, and it's certainly a big step up from the listed grade, which you won on last time. But is it more sort of trying to find out a little bit more about where you're going next season or do you sort of think, you know, he really could be up to this class? Um, I think it's more about uh, a big pot of prize money and uh, Sheikh Mohammed Obeidi's owner was uh, was happy to, to enter him and have a go. So um, if I was, which I which I am... But, yeah, it is a bit of a punt and we'll find out um, where we are for next season. But, you know, if, if he finishes third or fourth, he's, he's picking up a big lump of money. So um, while it's not all about the money and, uh, you know, you want the prestige of being in these races and, he, and the heavy rain coming, you know, if it was good ground, he probably wouldn't be going. But um, with this heavy rain arriving, then he goes there with a, a fighting chance for a place. Yeah, and there might, just might not be too many run, runners either because a few of them have got other options. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So, um, no, very happy to run him and take his chance. And whatever he does this time, I think he will improve again. But uh, as I say, you know, it's a, it's a big ask. It's a big step up. But I, I, I'm sure he won't disgrace himself. And just Poptronic quickly, um, she's probably shown her better form on quicker ground. But would you give her a squeak? She's very, very well in herself. Um she actually ran very well and didn't really see out the trip in France um, over the mile six. Um, she got very agitated as well, and she could just possibly have been coming out into or out of season. You know, she, she kicked a shoe off in the stalls. She was in the stalls a long time and got very agitated, ran not not free, but ran quite keen and on it, which, she, which is her when she gets a bit like that. And so she did well to still be in with, you know, right up in the firing line, um, turning in. 
and just faded really in the last furlong. So the drop back to a mile and a half will suit heavy ground. I think she'll handle it, but you know she is probably better on 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 better ground. So it'll be interesting to see whether they switch to the. For her, it will be an advantage if they switch to the hurdle course um, or the inner course. And um, she's she's a lovely filly, and you know she's got a date at the sales at the end in December. So you know it's a bit of a no-brainer really to have another go at a Group One. Whether she's quite that level, I don't know, but. You know, if she puts up her best performance, I think, she, again, she goes there in great form. Um, after a long season, she looks, she's still got a summer coat on her. And, you know, if we can nick a place, that would be brilliant. Great. Well, Carl, thanks so much for your time this morning. And, uh, yeah, best of luck this weekend. Thanks, Charlotte. Lee Mosshead's back with me. And, Lee, you've just listened to Carl there. His most intriguing runner has to be Royal Rhyme, doesn't it? Oh, by a country mile, yeah. I mean, he is a horse who was probably the most impressive of all winners at Glorious Goodwood this year when winning uh, the big minor quarter handicap for three-year-olds in ridiculously easy fashion. Um, the win at Air most recently in the Duneside Cup built on that. Although he's the lowest horse in this race on official ratings, he ran a racing post rating of 118 at Air last time. That is more than good enough for him to be uh, a runner uh, and a runner with a chance in the champion stakes he's a progressive horse and what's interesting too of course if you look at this race charlotte is again to an extent depending on on which track they run the race that could impact on which horses run in the race uh angus girl was on the pod yesterday with nick from shadwell he was talking about mustardaf we know that although mustardaf has won on soft ground he doesn't want soft ground um, his participation, one would expect, would be to a, to, to, a, to, a, to a significant degree in question if we get really heavy ground. Um, you would wonder as well whether there'd be doubts about Nashua. Um, I don't know, would even King of Steel um, be lining up if the ground was really atrocious on Saturday? Royal Rhyme looks like he has, handles the ground uh, particularly well. I don't think it'd be a massive problem for him. So again, the, the, the champion states could look very different when we get to Saturday afternoon than it looks now as we're talking at 3.45. Whoever is in the race, though, Royal Rhyme is a legitimate runner with a legitimate chance. Ahead of the final British Champions Series meeting of the season, two more names have been inducted into the Kipco British Champions Series Hall of Fame, one being the first British horse to win at the Breeders' Cup Pebbles, who took the turf in 1985, and the second being jockey Steve Cawthon, who Nick caught up with yesterday. Well, two great names of the 1980s, I think you would say, in the UK anyway, uh, have been the latest inductees into the British Champion Series Hall of Fame, which is gathering momentum all the time. It's got a long, long way to go before it catches up with its counterpart uh, in America, in Saratoga. But uh, that's quite timely because... Uh, the man who has uh, been inducted into the Hall of Fame becomes the first to enter both the US and the UK equivalent because he is, of course, uh, the man who won the US Triple Crown at the age of just 18 on Affirmed and then who came over to the UK and won the Triple Crown on Oh So Sharp in 1985. He is Steve Cawthon. Steve, um, quite an accolade to enter both Halls of Fame. What sort of, uh, what sort of pride do you take in that? Oh, well, you know, obviously I'm delighted. Um... You know, the fact is I spent most of my career in, in, in Europe, you know, in England. So, uh, you know, it is nice to be recognized, you know, for my time there. And, you know, um, 
I, uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing everybody and, uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's a truly a great honor. So happy. That group of riders that you rode with, it, it did seem and does seem when you look back on it now to be a, 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 a group from, from a, from a golden age. Is that the way you look back on it? Yeah. I mean, I feel blessed, you know, my whole career I rode with so many great riders, you know, obviously in America, I was riding with Pinkai, Shoemaker, um, Delahousie, uh, Pat, uh, Day, you know, just, you know, you name it, they were all there. Angel Cordero. And then, you know, came to Europe and, uh, Lester was there, Pat Edry, uh, Walter Swinburne, uh, Willie Carson, um, yeah, then Frankie showed up and, you know, we had, uh, like you said, it was a great year. There was a lot of, you know, of course we also, you know, when we crossed the, you know, the pond, you know, go across the channel in France, you had, uh, Freddie Head and Yves Saint-Martin, you know, it was just a, you know, it was a, you know, very good time for top class jockeys. What, what did you have to learn when you first came to, to Britain? What did you have to adapt to most obviously? Mainly the courses and, you know, the style of racing, you know, because it was, it is different, vastly different. You know, you're racing over, instead of a, you know, a level flat left-handed track, there's just, you know, there's undulations, you know, most of the finishes are uphill, so you you definitely have to make sure you have, you know, plenty of horse left for the finish. And, you know, just uh, learning the courses really, um, you know, some of the courses, you know, you the, the best place if it rains is on the outside fence, you know. And I mean, in America, you never, that never happens, you know? So, you know, it was, uh, it, it probably took me three years before I really felt like I was on a level level playing field with, you know, with the guys that had been there all the, you know, years where I finally knew, you know, where to go, when to go and all that stuff. But, um, you know, it was, a, it was a great time. Obviously, Jimmy Lindley was the one who, you know, showed me around the courses and of course, Barry, you know, was instrumental and, you know, getting me focused and, you know, is giving me a kick up the backside, you know, when I wasn't, uh, you know, trying hard enough. <laughs> <laughs> Edery Carson Piggott Dottori in, in a very young Hall of Fame so far, in addition to you, Steve, in the UK. Obviously, in, in the US, this is a, a, a decades-old institution. Just try and describe for, for a European audience or a worldwide audience exactly what it means to be a Hall of Famer in, in America. Well, I mean, you know, it's... It's what everybody, uh, you know, works hard all their career to try to achieve, which is to be one of the best, you know, to be known as one of the best uh, in your, not only in your year, but of all time, you know. And, uh, you know, I mean, I obviously, you know, at some point they're going to have to start, you know, inducting, you know, Sir Gordon Richards and all the, you know, the greats of the past that, you know, when they didn't have a Hall of Fame that belong there, obviously. But, you know, great horses, great trainers the history of the sport, you know, it's really is the history of our game. And, um, you know, uh, I, um, you know, I'm delighted that England, you know, has decided to, to do it because it's, you know, it's, it's the honor of all, you know, of all time for, you know, whatever profession you're in. And what about Frankie Dottori? Could he, could he join you as a, as a hall of famer in, in both countries? Do you think he's got a, an amazing record in the Breeders' Cup? He's going to ride another season or two in Santa Anita by the, by the sounds of it. What do you make of his, his decisions this week? Well, I think, you know, as I know, you know, it's tough to give up something that you're really good at, you know, cause you know, you're never going to be maybe quite as good at anything else in your life. I mean, Frankie, obviously, has got everything, you know, I mean, when he does retire, you know, he's, he's got 10 zillion things that, you know, are waiting for him to do. 
but I think, you know, it's kind of like letting go of, you know, the thing that got you there, right? The thing that you really, you know, really made you a star, made you who you are. And I think it's, you know, it's very hard to give up. Um, especially, you know, he's got his weight, right? You know, he, you know, he's, he's in great shape. So, I mean, you know, he's, I think it's, um, admirable that he's given it a shot. And I think, uh, I think he was so well received last, you know, last winter out there that, uh, he had a good time, and I think he, you know, he got some good rides, and I think he'll get more. You know, Steve, well done, congratulations. Look forward to seeing you at Asker. Thanks so much for talking to me. Oh, my pleasure. Great talking to you, Nick. Well, Lee, just leaving Champions Day behind for now, and there's been a bit of an update from Ireland with regards to financial irregularities within the IHRB. What's the latest? Yeah, so Nick and Jane were talking on Monday about something that Nick is. Uh, discussed in the past on this pod and on Lock on Sunday, namely the uh, the financial situation in relation to Irish Horse Racing's regulatory uh, board, the IHRB. Um, it was re- we, we were reminded on Monday that there is a, a financial uh, investigation going on into uh, the IHRB's finances has been has been done by an independent body, but there was also discussion on the pod on Monday um, about um, about figures relating to um, various charities um, with which the IHRB is linked and a discrepancy in the finances between um, IHRB accounts and reports um that has been picked up by brian o'connor in the irish times today um who references a fifty thousand, or well, almost fifty thousand discrepancy um in the IHRB accounts for 2019 and 2020 uh, he put this to an IHRB spokesperson um, and asked for comment. The spokesperson said, we've engaged with Mazars, which is the Mazars, that's the organisation doing the financial review. We've worked with them and we await their findings now. When Darrow Lachlan, the, the, the chief executive of the IHB, spoke before the Doors Public Accounts Committee, he in no way tried to play down the potential severity of this discovery. He spoke about it being something that caused grave concern, being financial in nature and labelling it a bombshell. Well, I don't think the revelations of the discussion, the commentary that we've seen in recent days in any way plays down the likely severity of what could be to come. And I think everyone in Irish racing and beyond will be watching and waiting with significant interest. Now time for some more international news, this time from a bit further afield, and here's Nick with more. Now it could be that two of the most powerful brokers in the sport, um, New South Wales' Peter Volandis and the Hong Kong Jockey Club boss and the head of the International Federation of Horse Racing Authorities, Winfred Engelbrecht Breskus, may be burying their differences for the, the sound future of the sport. That's according to Michael Cox, the founder and editor of the Asian Racing Report. I was fascinated reading your article yesterday, Michael. 
about these two hugely charismatic figures in global racing and how they might now be starting to come together. Just give us a little bit of background as to as to both, and and you've worked under under both of them as well, and the influence that they've wielded. Yeah, great to join you, Nick. And yes, I have worked in both jurisdictions, New South Wales. I started here as a as a racing journalist, and I went to Hong Kong in two thousand and eleven through 2019 and now back to New South Wales. So I've witnessed firsthand, I've had a bit to do with both administrators and probably the two most powerful men in world racing, certainly effective leaders, um, certainly have their detractors, but you can't doubt their effectiveness at, at getting things done. And now they're surprisingly to me working together on, on uh, with the World Pool Initiative. So, Michael, why does this surprise you? What's been the, say, antipathy, animosity might be too strong a word, but what's been the antipathy between them and between their jurisdictions up to this point? Well, I think, firstly, we go back to an incident in 2008 when Chris Munts, the Australian jockey, was uh, caught in a betting scandal by the ICAC in Hong Kong. He was jailed for 20 months, but he had a a ban given to him for 30 months by the Hong Kong Jockey Club uh, under a gentleman's agreement or under a uh, between jurisdictions around the world that they would honour each other's disqualifications and suspensions and Racing New South Wales decided that Chris Munster's time spent in prison was enough and that he would be allowed to ride in Sydney. That angered uh, Winfred and the officials in Hong Kong and Peter Volandis, I guess one of his most outstanding characteristics or his defining characteristics is he just acts in the interests of New South Wales. He, and one of the criticisms of him is that he does what he thinks is best for New South Wales and New South Wales alone. And that caused a real um, gap between these two jurisdictions, which is interesting because so many other officials, basically all of the stewards in Hong Kong, the stipendary stewards, uh, uh, come via Sydney. A lot of the jockeys that we've seen, um, Zach Burton, the champion jockey there at the moment, John Sires, the champion trainer from Sydney. So there's a lot of crossover, a lot of journalists in it. In, a lot of Australians come by in New South Wales to Hong Kong. But when it came to the two chiefs in both jurisdictions, just no love lost on a personal level, no cooperation on a number of levels. But, you know, just further to that, I think it just in their nature, both of them, I will say it, both quite similar in the way they go about things and quite similar in their methods and their mindset and their intelligence, quite frankly. They're, they're, they're whatever anyone wants to say about the results or which way they choose, great racing administrators. And we know that what is uppermost in Winfred's mind at, at the moment is, is Whirlpool. Uh, its reach extending not only through Europe and the United States, but also into into Australasia. And this is apparently the driver between what you describe as the breaking of bread between Peter Volandis and, and Winfred Engelbrecht-Breskers. How has this manifest itself? Well, I think what's good for both jurisdictions, I guess, like, like um, the Everest is the big one, which is the race at the centre of Peter Volandis' campaign to disrupt Australian racing to try and break Melbourne's stranglehold on spring racing, these uh, $20 million now slot race, which was run on Saturday. And I guess Whirlpool wanting to 
extend its reach to the biggest betting races in the world and the most important races. They just couldn't ignore it anymore. This is a race of enormous interest in Australia and the world as one of the preeminent sprint races in the world. Of course, it lacks Group 1 status, and that's a key point within the politics of Australian racing. But I think it suited both parties to where, you know, money talks. And you've got these enormous betting pools from Hong Kong. The Whirlpool concept is where Hong Kong hosts the betting, paramutual betting pool. And, you know, there's money in it for the jurisdiction hosting the race if they're willing to play by the, the betting rules of, of Hong Kong. And Peter Volandis, obviously, wanting that cash injection, increase the size of the pool, some money, um, that's what's brought them together. I guess what I've written in my column and what I hope uh, is that maybe that brings some influence. I've talked about it before, the influence of the whirlpool um, could be a, a bit more than just monetary for these jurisdictions. Okay, that Hong Kong say, would you like us to be betting on your race? Here's a check, basically. But maybe they'll ask for a bit more. Maybe they'll ask for some rules harmonisation. Maybe there'll be, um, you know, on, that's in the good thing. Like, will we see one day race times being changed, though? Will we see race conditions being changed? Could we see track conditions asking for firmer tracks, perhaps? It's that punters like in Hong Kong and they're more accustomed to. There's other questions that could be asked down the track when the influence from Hong Kong comes. But I think largely positive though that um that we've got two of these guys who can make things happen i think that's some some of one of their other defining characteristics they're politically aware they can make things happen and generally they act in the best interests of their jurisdictions All right, not too long now until the Autumn Horses in Training sale at Tattersall's. There have been 148 group or listed races won in Australia by Autumn Horses in Training purchases, including the winners of 20 Group 1 races. A man who's had enormous success buying such horses is agent Johnny McKeever, who's bought Group 1 winners Glen Cadam Gold, particular favourite of mine, Knight's Order, The Offer, and most recently... Just fine for Gay Waterhouse. Just fine, a Group 1 winner this season. When we're searching for Gay Waterhouse in particular, um, we're cutting it down probably to the top 10% of the catalogue. And even then, um, obviously, we're not looking at sprinters. So uh, it's it's fairly... It's It wouldn't be take Einstein to work out um, what our shortlist is going to be and it's going to be very similar to the other major Australian trainers such as Chris Waller, Annabelle Neesham uh, and uh, all the others uh, who will be out looking for the same sort of horses and interestingly in recent years obviously with the newly established staying races in uh, new Arab racing nations they are also looking for similar horses as well so the demand for a good quality stayer is incredibly high no so i mean that that is going to drive those prices up pretty significantly however the the purchase price of just fine three hundred thousand guineas whilst it might have looked a fair bit at the time now looks pretty reasonable because the horse has won a, a good chunk in australia since yes um i haven't actually looked up how much he won funny enough that the group one race 
trophies that he won the other day the Metropolitan uh, is a weight is not a weight for age race and it's slightly lower in value but I think it was worth around about a million dollars or, or sort of 500,000 um, uh, Aussie dollars which mm. would be a fair chunk back towards the 300,000 Johnny obviously it's great for, for people who are trading out of the UK to be able to make an awful lot of money selling to, to Australia a lot's been talked about recently about the talent drain from here from your perspective are you seeing significantly more orders for horses to go to Australia than you did say a decade ago um Personally, because I work mainly for, for Gay and Adrian, uh, and I have done for about uh, 15 or 20 years now, um, I, you know, once you're working for one, one camp, you're, you're not going to be working for another. So um, I think basically most years I'm seeing about the same, but I think definitely I'm seeing more opposition bidding against me for sure. Um, and uh, yeah, they're, they're, these days are highly in demand. And as I say, it's not just the Australians, it, it's the, the orders from maybe Rothman Racing or whatever, Ollie Tate, um, ironically, an Australian stud farmer, uh, ex Dali general manager who's now heading up that operation and he's last year for instance for sure he bid against me on most horses i bid against i i was bidding on on behalf of gay and which obviously several other australians were also bidding on so um it's not just an exclusively australian thing anymore but yeah um i think the demand for stoves mm. has probably gone up in the so, so, so actually, would 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 that not be a good incentive? As people are saying that you know we ought to be standing more stamina laden stallions and uh, get, getting more opportunities for the sort of middle market to breed a staying horse at mile and a half plus. Would that not be an incentive in itself for people to do it, even if it takes them a couple of years longer in the in the making? Their their end reward is likely to be is likely to be significantly greater because it sounds as though there aren't enough horses for for all the collective orders that you've got to fill. Well, you're, you're absolutely correct. But unfortunately, your little interjection there, even if it takes a bit longer to get there, that is the problem. I mean, I know buying yearlings for a commercial trainer in England, uh, but at the end of the day, much as we might look at a Camelot or something and love it, we know that that's going to be a harder sell for him to his owners in England because they want to have something to race as a two-year-old. And if you're if you're looking going for a stallion that is a, a getter of stayers that probably don't get two-year-old runners, um, the owners in England can't afford, with the training fees of approximately thirty thousand sterling a year, to wait a whole year to go further. And that's the problem. That's the problem. If anyone needs any incentive, they only need to look at your purchase of, of Just Fine and maybe they ought to look at Annabelle Neesham and Blandford Bloodstock's purchase of Fancy Man last year as well because he's a horse who was bought by Peter and Ross Doyle in Ireland for €30,000 as a yearling and he realised 675,000 guineas as a son of Pride of Dubai out of a stoutly bred Galileo mare. So I don't know, I'd, I'd, I'd think I'd wait for the, for the chance of a return like that. Oh, yeah, you... Uh, you think you'd wait, and and but the the economic reality is that uh, Richard Hannon, um, who's a pal of mine too, as well as Charlie Hills, and we we've, when we buy these yearlings, we're buying them on spec, and they've got to be sold on to to owners in the stable, and, and most of them really just can't afford to wait. They want something that's going to. I'm not saying go to Royal Ascot, but they want something that they're going to have a little bit of fun with in the following season. 
um, even if it's an autumn campaign. And it's quite hard to persuade. It's always the ones that are the more stagly bred that, that, that are the ones left at the end of the you know on the line when the when the yearlings get gets get sold down so uh, but if you know you're correct if you if you if you have the patience and you can afford to be patient the the potential reward from having a good stay uh is um is the best having said all that if you are buying good stairs or you're hoping to be good stairs you are competing against godolphin and coolmore who themselves breed incredibly good stairs so your chances of being successful are also quite diminished in that respect so it's a it's a juggling act i'm not quite sure what the answer is lee mott said and i have just listened to that interview nick's done with johnny mckeever there and Lee, it's an interesting one, isn't it? It's something we've covered a lot on the podcast over the last few months, um, especially Lydia Hislop. It's something she's been very passionate about, the future of the mile and a half horse in Britain. Uh, and at the moment, you know, the Australians, they're on to a winner with our horses, aren't they? Yeah, they absolutely are. Um, you're right, Charlotte. It has been discussed plenty. It needs to be discussed plenty. I don't think anything that we've seen at the the recent run of major yielding sales has changed the the narrative in this debate in that for in the main part um owners appear to want relatively quick wins and the demand for horses who race over um a distance or who are likely to race over a distance is not nearly as strong as for those horses who will be competing in two-year-old contests, unless that is, um, we are talking about the very biggest operations that do have the capacity and the willingness to wait and to show patience. And as a result of that, the market, the biggest market for these middle distance types has often been from um, from the Southern Hemisphere. And in particular, once these horses are already proven established performers um it is regrettable that there isn't more demand for this sort of horse in um in europe in britain and ireland um and there doesn't appear to be much sign of that changing and to an extent there are there are many there are many factors in that um but one one consequence is that if you look at a race like saturday's caulfield cup for which declarations were made today um and the draw as well and you look down charlotte some of the horses that are running in the race for australian interests and they are very familiar names you know gold trip winner of last year's melbourne cup previously raced in france horses like uh, francesco gardi and solcombe who uh, previously raced in britain for james ferguson and william haggis respectively they go for chris waller who yamal last year's derby second and misery that's just a handful of those that have come from Europe. And the reality is that the um, the Australian market, which also isn't breeding this sort of horse, is instead looking to looking to Europe and plundering this sort of horse, grabbing this sort of horse, because they, again, they want a quick win of their own. They don't want to breed these horses. They just want to buy our established horses. And, of course, one consequence is that horses like Solcombe and Francesco Gardi that might well have been progressive sorts had they stayed in Britain are instead competing in Australia. 
Um, so it's a, it's a situation that isn't changing. It's likely only going to get um, more pronounced. Um, one consolation at the moment is we do at least have a European British train horse competing in the Caulfield Cup who hasn't been sold. West Wind Blows is actually one of the favourites um, for the contest, trained by Sunday Chris, going to be ridden by Jamie Spencer. He's been handed a uh, an inside draw in store to He can go forward, so it's probably a decent draw if he breaks well on Saturday. But a really intriguing, fascinating Caulfield Cup. As I say, plenty of familiar names for British and Irish racing fans. Plenty of familiar names and plenty of uh, Melbourne Cup clues on offer, I'd have thought, on Saturday. Uh, Lee, are you, are you off to the Melbourne Cup this year? I am, yeah. I, I suspect that um, Mr Luck and myself will be uh, talking on the pod from Melbourne at some point in Cup Week. Yeah, really looking forward to it. It's building nicely um, to Charlotte. And Gold Trip, so Lash's Cup winner, has been declared for the Caulfield Cup, raising the possibility of him going for the Caulfield Cup, the Cox Plate and the Melbourne Cup, as he did last year. And as things stand, um, the Melbourne Cup, albeit like this year, on international representation still has a big international feel to it um and with Vauban at the head of the market for Willie Mullins I mean that will be a a big story over here it'll be a big story over there they know Willie Mullins well he's knocked on the door so many times in the Melbourne Cup and that horse is a particularly strong favorite we've got Frankie Dettori going over there although as yet he hasn't got a ride in the Melbourne Cup, hopefully Tom Marquand as well. And we know, as I say, that Holly Doyle has a ride booked in the Melbourne Cup on future history with, let's say, lots of other horses that we know well from past days in Europe, like Solcombe and Francesco Garner, that will also be set to go on to the Cup, as would uh, without a fighty race last year for the Christmas, but this year uh, runs for the Freedmen's teams. Yes, yeah, so I'll be heading off to the Melbourne Cup, although my, my future is not quite as... Uh, glamorous or busy as that of Nick, who will be going there by Sandra Nita, as one does. Well, I'm quite envious of uh, of both of you, to be honest. And um, Lee, it's Wednesday, so before I come to you for a tip, we're going to go off to Hong Kong and J.O. McGrath. There'll be no Vincent Ho riding at Happy Valley today. He's under suspension. He got 10 meetings for his ride uh, on the horse Capital Delight. And this was because the stewards found that he did not ride the horse out to their satisfaction to the end of the race, despite the fact that he got up to dead heat with Lucky Archangel. So, an interesting case. Uh, Vincent Ho has appealed against the severity of uh, of the penalty, and that will be heard tomorrow. And it will be of great importance to Vincent because Golden 60, who trialled yesterday and trialled pretty well at Sha Tin, uh, could possibly take his chance in the Group 2 Jockey Club Mile at Sha Tin on November the 19th. If he does, and if Ho loses that appeal, well, they'll be looking for a new jockey. And that'll break new ground. So that's all up in the air for Vincent Ho. But as far as Capital Delight is concerned, I think he'll win today. Race 8, number 6, another win on the board for him. Uh, Hugh Bowman comes in for the ride this time on this Casper Founds trained horse. Number three, Wonder Kit is your danger, ridden by Zach Purton for Francis Louis. So race eight, number six, Capital Delight to beat number three, Wonder Kit, and take them in a tote swinger. 
The main race is the Longines Cup. It's a handicap for Class 4 over 6 furlongs. It's race 5 on the card. And here, David Hayes saddles up a horse called Solid Shalar. Now, so far, he hasn't won a race in uh, 8 races in Hong Kong. But in Brisbane, before export, he actually won three in the metropolitan area in Australia. So he's got ability, that's for sure. And I think he's going to really take advantage of a drop in grade. He's dropped down to class four here from class three. And I think he'll show the benefit of that drop in class. So race five, number one, Solid Shillar, who's blinkered for the first time. That's also to his advantage, I think. And he can beat number eight around the globe. So race five, number one, Solid Shalar to beat number eight around the globe. Another horse of interest is in race seven, a horse called Romantic Lau for uh, Cody Moe, the new trainer who's already uh, got wins on the board. And Zach Purton comes in for the ride there as well. So race seven, number two, Romantic Lau to put another win on the board to beat number five, a CP Brave. That's uh, Happy Valley today, and that's all on the Hong Kong Beat this week. I'll have more for you next week. Well, Lee Mothead is back with me for the final time today. And Lee, we've discussed your impending trip to Melbourne. So for your tip today, will you be sending us anywhere exotic? Well, it depends, Charlotte, how exotic one might consider Weatherby um, to be. Um, when, I was, when I was younger... Um, quite a few winters ago. This was always a, a, a big day for me. I was at, I was at uni uh, in Yorkshire and the first jumps meeting of the season at Weatherby was a big deal. Um, I well remember one of my favourite ever jumpers, Simply Dashing, uh, winning a novice hurdle, I think, on this card years ago. It's a card that's always been dominated by the Bobby Renton chase. Sadly, it's a race that's not quite the race it, it used to be. In fact, the first prize or the prize win this year isn't really any more than it was 20 years ago, um, sadly. But it's a competitive enough handicap chase again this season. And I am tipping Payne the Piper, um, the top weight trained by Anne Hamilton. Her string is in good form. Two winners from three runners in the last fortnight. Um, he's, a, he's a class act. Uh, they've got a good five-pound conditional. Connor Rabbit claiming off him today. He goes well at Weatherby. And I think Pay the Piper might well win the Bobby Renton handicap chase, which this year is run at 3.33, which was when I was a, a student in that part of the world. No races took part at 3.33, so it shows that times do change. Well, thanks to Lee and thanks to all the guests today. Nick will be back in the hot seat tomorrow morning. Thank you very much once again for listening. That was episode 855. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Thank you.